So what do you think of when you, you think of this phrase, the American dream? What comes to your mind? That phrase was first coined back around 1930. But we'll go back to our founding documents as a nation and we, we think of all people being created equal and having the privilege, the right, uh, to pursue life, liberty, and happiness, the American dream. I think some of that may have morphed a little bit over time. But back in the 1800s, there was just a surge of people moving to this country. And it's continued on through the 20th century. Even now, we find people wanting to flood in to our nation and be a part. And in 1862, Congress passed the Homestead Act. And it's pretty amazing when you read back of what was happening in our country. This was, this was right at the beginning of the Civil War. But the Homestead Act was a law that gave every citizen and everyone who wanted to be a citizen. So if you're already a citizen or you just came and you wanted to be a citizen and you had $10, you could homestead a piece of land in the West that would be a square mile or 160 acres. You had five years to make a go of it. You had to build a house. You had to be able to start raising crops or make the land productive. You had to stick it out and fight through all of those things. When you think about that, it was, it was, in a sense, a gift, but one of opportunity. It wasn't that you just have everything in life handed to you, but you had opportunity. And our nation has always been viewed that way as a place of opportunity. So what did the settlers face? Well, they have the land, they put down their stake, they stake their claim, they've got to find water, They've got to find food, shelter, trees to build, protection from wild animals, drought, severe winters, heat, Indians, other settlers, bandits, surviving sickness, disease without doctors, farming accidents. It was not an easy life. The American dream was not an easy life, but it was an opportunity. We dream we anticipate, we look forward to something. And that's much like what we find God's people, the children of Israel, if they have, as they have left the slavery in Egypt, traveled through the wilderness, and they are at the doorstep of entering into the promised land. So what will they find? You know, if you paid your $10 in 1862, you didn't just walk in and find the house already built, the barn filled, the crops all ready to go, and it's harvest time, and food is at the table. No, there is nothing. And if you were expecting that, <laughs> you would be greatly disappointed. That's where a lot of our discouragement comes, is when, when we have our expectations and then reality sets in. But this story that we have read, Paul read 
in the New Living Translation. I asked him to read it in the New Living Translation because a lot of these narratives, you just if you read big sections, you understand it a little better. So I'll be preaching actually out of the ESV, and I'm not meaning to confuse everyone, but I always say read it in a number of translations. It gives you a better understanding of what's being said. So here we have the children of Israel. Moses is their leader. And we're going to examine this part of their journey. So I'd like to look at what happened, what should have happened, and what are the lessons that we learned from reading this. So we begin with what happened. And we're finding three million, two to three million people, we estimate, are standing at the door of crossing over the Jordan River and entering into the promised land. The Hebrew dream. I mean, they have been looking forward to this for so long. The excitement, the anticipation of what they'll experience. And so, once again, God gives instructions to Moses. Moses is the man, unique, because he has a relationship with God like a friend. He speaks to God face to face, in a sense. And so God will give his instructions through Moses. Moses is a picture, in many ways, of Christ. Christ is our way to God. He is the only way to God. And we're finding many years before Christ arrives on the scene, Moses is that type of picture, uh, delivering uh, leading deliverance for God's people. So let me read this part of the text, verse, uh, chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, everyone a chief among them. So here's the instructions, they're, they're right at the brink of going in. They, they're, they've finished their journey. They're ready to celebrate, to go into this land. And here's what God says. 12 selected and 12 instructed. So how do you select from each tribe a man? How would we choose a representative? And I often thought about that. We know of Joshua and Caleb. There are two of them. And the, rest, the, the other 10, uh, we don't remember their names as well. But there are 12, 12 tribes representing all the people. And we're going to choose someone to represent. So if you were considering candidates of who is going to represent you going in to spy out the land, to check it out, who would you choose? Well, if you followed the model of our government, we'd be in a mess. <laughs> because you, you ask yourself, why, why is it that we can't get anyone to run for office who has character? I'm not trying to throw everyone under the bus, but most of them. <laughs> so a lot of times, it's how much money you have, how much popularity you have, how many lies you can tell. But how many people are really chosen based upon character? Their character. 
We're not even talking about spirituality because we're not a Christian nation. But I would say here, a God-fearing, Bible-believing, uh, Pentateuch-believing uh, people would select who would represent them the most godly, faithful, full of character person that could represent them. But I doubt that that happened. In fact, I know that that didn't happen. In most cases, it didn't take place. So how do we choose? How do we make a selection? And I think we're so caught up in, in that even today. So these 12, they're selected and, and Moses instructs them, go spy out the land. Now they didn't go in to decide whether or not we're going in. That was not, that was not the mission. No, you're to go and spy. In other words, you inspect to see what we'll face. Many times the due diligence that God calls us to in the Christian life is not to make the decision whether or not we're going to do the right thing. It's what we will face. And I do feel there's a responsibility to know that, you know, we accept the responsibility and we need to be aware of what's happening. It's like I, I, I still remember in some big decisions in my life um, determining God's will and doing the pros and cons thing. You ever do that? You know, you're, you're right up there. Okay, here are all the pros. And I write all that list and all the cons. And then I realize, what does that have to do with the will of God? <laughs> Nothing. Because there are a lot of things God calls you to. You have more cons than you have pros. I mean, it, it, it's going to be that way. But it does help me be aware of what I'm going to face. And that's not a bad thing. That's exactly what's taking place here. The instructions are go spy out the land, bring a report back, and even bring some of the goods that you find in the land. So what did they find? Uh, they found, just as God had said, a bountiful land flowing with milk and honey. It even says that when they came to the, to the valley of Eskel, they the grapes that they picked from the vines, they took one bunch of grapes and, it and put a pole between two of them and were carrying a cluster of grapes. I'd like to have seen those grapes. And can you imagine all these years they hadn't had grapes wandering through the wilderness? And so the, the, it was better than advertised. It was amazing. It was the land. Everything God said is true. But they also found <laughs> some other things. This is where the story gets interesting. So everything that God said is true and better than he said. But they also found wild animals, other nations occupying the land. Giants. Giants. And... They're full of fear. So this is when the expectations and reality set in. Now these giants weren't just big people. You know, I think of uh, in the NFL, you know, we watch, a lot of us watch some of the best teams play at the end of the season. When you think of one of those defensive linemen coming at you at 6'5 or 6'6, 350 pounds, all muscle, or mostly muscle, <laughs> and 
and they run like four, three, a 4340. It's like, you get hit by one of those, that's the end of your life. <laughs> At six foot five inches tall. Andre the Giant, how many of you remember him? Okay. Seven foot four, 500 pounds, and a pro wrestler. I mean, I saw him pick up Arnold Schwarzenegger just like a doll. <laughs> and we think Arnold Schwarzenegger would be a bit intimidating. But seven foot four, the tallest man in modern history was Robert Wadlow from Alton, Illinois, and just about a quarter inch shy of nine feet tall. Now, most ceilings back in those days were like eight feet. So it's like you're, you're walking about this. I'm looking at pictures online of him, and everybody standing around him is like this. Goliath was nine feet, nine inches tall. So you take the tallest human that we know, and, and just you keep going up. That's just right under the rim of the basket and a warrior. So the sons of Anak, or descendants of Anak, are called the Nephilim. And as mentioned in Genesis 6, and I'm not going to digress too much into this because we could have a, a whole long conversation on it, but most people think, and I do think, somehow fallen angels are marrying with the women of that day and producing a superhuman, larger-than-life race. So we read about these throughout scripture. Now, Goliath, I don't think was, it doesn't say that he's part of the Nephilim, but descendants of Anak. And so I think there's some connection here. So the, these are like, you walk into the land and you have like Goliath, nine feet, nine inches tall and a warrior. It's, it's like they have superpowers. And it's not just one, it's many of them in the land. So, you know, to, to try to picture this, <laughs> they're terrified. They're absolutely terrified. It's not just nations already occupying the land, wild animals, and we've got to go in and fight some of these people. It's, this is impossible. This, this is absolutely impossible. So the result is they, well, they respond to this. And, and we've talked throughout this, two responses, fear or faith. Fear um, is seeing the giants above all else. And I probably would too. It's like, you know, all of a sudden the giants come out, you're, you're like, you see the giants above all else. So the grapes, the milk and honey, the fields, the trees, the water, the possibilities, the future, the giants. We see the giants above all else, and it paralyzes us. Joshua and Caleb saw God above all else. It's perspective. And your perspective will dictate how you respond. If you see the giants in your life above all else, that's how you're going to respond. But if you see God above all else, it'll also affect how you respond. So what's the right thing to do here for God's people? 
Well, majority rules. And it did here. I think a lot of us will go with the flow. You know what, 10 and two? I mean, like, you know, they must be right. If everybody's doing it, the majority rules. Majority's not right. So when the majority rules, What's going to happen? What, you know, if, if the people as a whole, they go back, they tell Moses, we found that we show them the grapes, we've seen everything, but then they start talking about the giants. And the people start wailing. They start wailing. And they're angry. And they want to stone Moses. And they want to find another leader. And they want to go back to Egypt. And they are at each other. Everything comes unraveled when we function out of fear. And they turn back. And the judgment of God comes upon the entire nation. Everyone 20 years of age and up over the next 40 years is going to die. Only those 20 under 20 and Joshua and Caleb are going to be permitted to go into the land. You say, that's a very stiff penalty. It is. Because God expects us to live by faith. And this whole wilderness experience has been a test of that faith. Joshua and Caleb included have to go back into the desert. So for the next 40 years, here, here's like they, they travel. It didn't take them that long. I mean, it's all within that same year. They go from Egypt to the promised land to the brink of it. They go back now into the desert and spend 40 years. 40 years. Until everyone dies off and now they come back. So that's what happened. It, it's, it's incredibly discouraging. You say, well, it's God's fault. That's typically what we say. It's God's fault. What, what is he doing putting giants in the land? Why does God have other people in the land? Well, he explains that. <laughs> You'll see that all explained. And we can tend to get angry with God, frustrated with God. Why would he lead us all the way from our bondage and slavery to here, and now we've got to face this. God's not loving. He doesn't care. He's not able to drive the giants out, and we completely distort our view of God. That's what happened. So let's, let's talk just briefly about what should have happened. Well, I think it's obvious, <laughs> and we find out 40 years later because they're back in 40 years, we fast forward, we'll cover some other things, so I'll, I'll, I'll get back to parts of their wilderness wandering, but, but let's fast forward 40 years, and they're back standing in the same place. <laughs> Here we are. And in verse 3, I'm going to have verse 3 on the, the uh, screen, but I'm, let me just read verses 1 to 3. It says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, <clears throat> the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them. 
to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. So, 40 years later, here they are, go possess the land. Every place you put your foot, you possess. Giants are still there. <laughs> Folks, you come back, and you know what? So many times we, we go back into the wilderness because we don't obey, and we circle back around and come back and say, I'm ready to obey, and God's still going to teach us faith. You didn't learn your lesson. You don't just wait long enough and it goes away because when they come in, those giants had babies. They're probably pretty big. <laughs> I think read, I was reading about Robert Wald, uh, Wald, uh, Waldorf. Um, you know, he ended up being almost nine feet tall, but like when he was like six years old, he was like six six. You can imagine that. <laughs> so the baby giants had more giants. So God brings them back. We're going to go through this again. So the last point that I have this morning, I just want to expand a little bit on this, is what do we learn from all this? What do we learn? In 1 Corinthians 10, in verse 11, it says, Now these things happen to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So God did this for them, and God does this for you, and he does it for me. So all of these things happened not only for their instruction, but for us. And God wants us to, to get our minds around what happened here so we can learn and grow. There are three lessons that I'd like to, to just mention. Number one is the truth of God's word. God's word is always true. Proverbs 30 and verse 5 says, Every word of God proves to be true. I love that verse. It just doesn't say it is true. It proves to be true. Every word of God is true. We have plenty of scriptures that tell us that. But, but Proverbs 30 and verse 5 says, every word of God, and every, every promise, everything he says, everything he tells these people, it proves out to be true. You just wait and see. It will always prove to be true. God cannot lie. God cannot fail. Every promise that he has ever given to you, every promise that God has ever given to me, he will fulfill. Isn't that amazing? And sometimes I'll read it, and I have a hard time believing it. Because I'm not seeing around me the evidence of it yet. So everything. So when they... they go into this land, and just like 40 years before, it's exactly the way he said. It is flowing with milk and honey. And every place you put your foot, you may possess. So that's the first lesson. Remember, the truth of God's word. Every word proves true. Secondly, the test of God's word. 
It is the nature of faith for you to be tested. We hate it. Just, I mean, you started hating that when you started going to school, right? We got to have a test. How about if I just kind of learn? I'll just kind of absorb. I don't like being tested. But God tests us to help us get it. And you don't get it unless you're tested. You don't get anything unless you're tested. This is always true. You read the first part of James chapter 1, he talks about how we develop maturity and strength and relationship and closeness. Everything that God wants to develop in your life, he will do that bringing truth in and having that truth tested. We'd all love to walk in the promised land. I'm going to pick that house. I'm going to pick that field. I'm going to get that barn. I'm going to, I'm going to have all this. And wow, it's just blessing. No, he, he is going to have you own it. But the only way you're really going to own it and keep that relationship tight with him is to have it tested. It, it drives you to him. It drives you to dependence. You remember we talked about this whole story is not about geographical location getting to the place. No, it's getting to the person, relationship. It's not about the distance between Egypt and the promised land. It's the distance between what you know and what you really experience in your heart, what you're willing to respond to. The nature of faith in the life of the believer will be tested, and we, it, we're tested to obey him. And the test of the giants. <laughs> I think, how many giants have you faced in your life? How many giants are you facing right now? There's probably really one big one who is superhuman, supernatural, overpowering, impossible, that makes you just feel paralyzed. Many times it's news from the doctor about your health. Culture, our, our schools, our entertainment, our politics, our, it, it's just like everywhere you turn, the overpowering presence of the evil one in our culture today. Financially, we've had several people just lost jobs, losing your home, people problems, going through divorce, betrayed by a loved one, abandoned by parents, misled by those you trust, hurt and offended, not just by enemies, but by your friends, by those that have committed to you. The giant of circumstances, where life becomes unbearable, the giant of worrying about your future. Sometimes those giants just, they do, they, they paralyze you, make you want to turn around and walk away and say, I just can't do this. And you start spinning down after seeing that giant, you, you run. You, it, it's, like, it's like the fear. The effect will rob you of your joy and strike fear in you. Or it will drive you to your Heavenly Father for help. Either the, it's, it's either fear or faith. It's going to drive you away or drive you to. And God is going to bring for every, and this is hard because when I look at you, I, I know a lot of the giants already, 
and I know more giants are coming. And it's not because God is not strong enough, and it's not because God is not loving enough. It is because God is going to shape his truth into your life by testing. Still remember when Diane and I were down in Branson the summer of 2016 and we had all her family there I mean which is over 50 people we have a big family <laughs> her mom and dad are there and we had such a great time we had lots of seeing everyone connecting with family and the big family reunion enjoyed the time swimming pool and so forth and then later on that evening my father-in-law gathered his children, the immediate children, the five of them, around, and they were meeting in a room. A lot of us didn't know what was going on. He wanted to talk to his five. Her dad was an ordained minister, doctor, surgeon. I mean, so he was like out of our, he was like the patriarch of our whole family. And you'd go to him, spiritual counsel, you'd always go to dad. Everybody, like, Who's the closest person in our family to you? Dad. It's grandpa. So he's like a rock spiritually. Advice, counsel, wisdom. And if you had an aching pain, he's one of the best surgeons around, doctors. I mean, he's just always studying, researching. Godly, godly man. Teacher, preacher, doctor. And he tells his kids, I've got six months to live. And at the time, he's like, you know, he's like six foot two, big, strong, looks healthy. We knew he'd had a few issues. He just like, he, he's, uh, he gives confidence, assurance, and presence. And I'll tell you what, how we all felt, no. I mean, we believed it was serious. It's not like we're discounting what you're telling us, but that's impossible. That's impossible. How can he he'd be dead in six months? He passed away in six months. And you know, all of a sudden, you know what you're having to eat that evening doesn't matter much. Watching the game don't care about. Planning vacation doesn't mean the same. You know, a lot of stuff in your life just doesn't mean a whole lot because that, that's a new giant. We're going to lose, and I know we're, he's going to heaven, but we're, we're going to lose the strongest physical, visible presence we have in our lives. And we still feel the effects of that, you know? I mean, he's probably one of my number one counselors in, in life. You know, I miss him. Some of you have lost loved ones over the last several years. Some of you have heard news from doctors that make you concerned. Some of you financially have been impacted in loss of jobs. Some of you have a lot of pain with family members that you're going through that never seems to let up. And Satan has an agenda to discourage you and to destroy you. 
That's his plan. Whatever your giant is. But God also has a plan to prove himself true. To prove everything that he has promised to you. To be your life. To be your peace. To be your joy. To be your provision. To meet every single need that you have. To conquer every giant. But he's not just going to take them out of the land. He's going to give you the ability, the supernatural ability through his strength to be more than conquerors. Through it. You know, it kills me when I see people I love go through pain. It just, little kids, family members, grandkids, people you love, it just, it kills me. And you, sometimes you say, I wish that would happen to me. And if you ever said that, I wish that would happen to me. God didn't give it to you. He gave you something else. He gave you another kind of giant. And he'll give you other giants. And he'll give you the grace for those. For that person, he'll give grace for that. This is what God's teaching. His word always proves true. The testing is always a part of his plan for your life. In the third lesson, I'll call it the testimony, the testimony of God's word. In other words, what plays out? What is the, the story? Well, the testimony of the ten was they go into the wilderness 40 years and die. They fight. They're miserable. They're angry at each other. They're complaining. They want to kill Moses. I mean, everything is just spinning out of control, and their decision not only affected them, but everyone else around them. That's the testimony of the ten. How about the two, Joshua and Caleb? <laughs> you know, Caleb at the time, they go in the second time, he's 80 years old. And here's what he says. He says, I still have the same strength I had 40 years ago. Well, you kind of think, I don't know if that's really true. <laughs> <laughs> well, but here's, here's the question. Where's his strength? You know, at 40, you're stronger than when you're 80. So how is it that he is going in and his strength has not abated at all. Because his strength never was in his own flesh. It was in God. And he says, he, he picked the land that he was going to go possess. And he says, give me this mountain. Remember singing a song as a kid. Give me this mountain. Now Joshua and Caleb had to wait 40 years too. <laughs> Sometimes we kind of Bear the pain of others' decisions. That's part of life. But you know what? God's not worried about that either because in that, even though other people make mistakes, he's working in you. He's working in you. So my last part of this, I talk about the testimony. The truth, the test, and the testimony. So the testimony of the ten, the two, and you. The ten, the two, and you. So this is where I want to end with you. Your giants in the land that God wants you to possess. What are you going to do? 
That's why we pray about everything. <laughs> we pray about everything. You better, you better march into that land in obedience, but you also ought to march into that land in dependence. Both of those are important. You march into the land because he told you to go march into the land. Go into the land and possess it. But you march in dependence upon him, his strength. Because you cannot defeat those giants. And we all have them. Christ is the means. The Holy Spirit is our guide. We face our giants. And here's what I'd like for us to take away. My, my plea with you and for my own heart. By faith, possess all that God has promised you. By faith, possess all that God has promised you. Step into the land in obedience and dependence, and by faith, possess all the land God has promised you. Father, your word is so strong and rich, so helpful to these people and to us today, no less effective. Father, I pray we learn these lessons as you have intended us to learn. In Jesus' name, amen.